are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hello, I'm Stephanie Ruff. And I'm Aviva Nabeski. We're the hosts of the Dressage Today podcast, where you can find us talking about anything and everything dressage related. Our conversations span the world of dressage from leading riders to local level dressage heroes. We're talking training advice, showing tips, and sharing stories to inspire your own dressage journey. So tune in, then tack up. Welcome to Season 4 of the Dressage Today podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Allison O'Dwyer, who has won the Dressage Division of the Retired Racehorse Project's Thoroughbred Makeover three times. We are looking forward to hearing what she likes about riding thoroughbreds in dressage. But before that, the dressage community was saddened to hear of the passing of Elizabeth Madliner. And Aviva, you rode with her for several years. So could you maybe share some memories of her that stand out to you? Yeah, I was very lucky, Stephanie, um, to work with Elizabeth for about three years. Um, She was a pioneer of dressage. She wrote articles. She wrote books. She was a senior judge. Um, she was a member of the L faculty. Um, she was passionate, absolutely passionate about dressage and dressage done well. Um, interestingly, I didn't meet her here in Maryland. Um, I was going through the L program and she was one of my instructors in Wisconsin. And, you know, it's a tough program. And we had this one Frisian come in the the ring and ride a training level test. And at the end of the test, Elizabeth was talking about this lovely horse's uphill movement and, you know, high scores for the balance and all of that. And I, you know, very tentatively raised my hand and said, um, you know, Frisians tend to be uphill. That's sort of breed specific, but they also tend to have kind of short necks. And this one had a short neck and. I wonder in, you know, training level, we want a horse that's reaching out and through the back and longer in the neck. So how do you address that versus the uphill balance? And there was dead silence. And, you know, the other nine people in the group are like scooting away from me because I'm toxic (laughs) at this point. And I thought, okay, I just failed the L program. And Elizabeth looked at me and she nodded her head and she says, you know, that's really valid. How about if we just agree to disagree on this one? And I thought, I really like this woman. So I made arrangements once we both got back to Maryland to start taking lessons with her. And I can't tell you how much I learned. Um, She expected perfection from her riders, but she was patient with the horses. Um, She was still riding when I rode with her. And this was maybe... 15 years ago. Um, And she said every day she threw her leg over a saddle, she learned something new from the horses, which I thought was incredibly profound and poetic and just stunning. Um, She is the first person who ever taught me about the biomechanics of the horse and the rider. She talked about things like seat bones. Um, And I remember I used to keep this series of emails that I would send to her. And it was so funny. This is part of our learning process. I know 
I'd send her an, an email, you know, in January and I'd say, Elizabeth, I had a great ride tonight. Today, I finally found my left seat bone. <laughs> and then, you know, six months later in July, I'd send her another email and I'd say, oh, my God, Elizabeth, I had the best ride today. I really found my seat bones for the first time. <laughs> and, you know, this went on for three years. I kept finding my seat bone, you know, because it is a it is a process. But, you know, she was the one who explained to me about why the AIDS makes sense. And, you know, if you use your balance and your position, you enable the horse to do it correctly. And why try to reinvent the wheel and explain something to the horse when you can just put them in a place to do it? Um, she was really pretty amazing. Um, I think that she's leaving an incredible legacy. And I know I've spoken to quite a number of her other students since I learned of her passing. And we're all, you know, we're all devastated. She was part of a a, a, a small but powerful cadre. Um, she and Linda Zhang, uh, Linda Oliver, who brought Bent Lenquist to this area. Right. Um, just it's it's a real loss. And I'm I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to learn with her um, through the L program. She was brilliant. Um, and to learn with her as a, as a rider. You know, it was amazing in the L program. One of the things that we did in the section that I did with her, we judged 10 tests at this was back in the day of training level test four, first level test four and second mm -hmm. level test four. And we did them, you know, in writing and we submitted them to Elizabeth and Elizabeth went over all 30 tests mm -hmm. for all 10 riders and made notes for every single movement score wow. commenting on our scores versus our comments and the further remarks. I mean, the attention to detail, the commitment to creating good judges. I'm, she was something very special. Yeah. Well, unfortunately her influence will continue to be felt. I think so. Yeah. Through people like you. Yeah, I think so. I think so. For 2023, we continue Aviva's Ask the L segment. So today's question was submitted by Jamie. Are you judged on what happens between the movements or is it just the movement itself? So this is like the best question ever, Jamie. Thank you so <laughs> much for asking it. Um, so the technical answer is that the stuff that happens between the movements is called a modifier and another modifier is the quality of the gates. Um, so if you do a movement really well, um, but your horse doesn't have great gates that, you know, changes the score. If you, you know, prepare really well, obviously you ride the thing better. Um, this is my little get up on my soapbox issue. So I call the stuff between the movements, the connective tissue. And if you think about what connective tissue is in a person or a horse, it's the stuff that holds everything together. Um, and that's what I think the stuff between the movements really is. It's the stuff that holds the movements together. So if you come down center line and you make a straight center line, but you don't prepare properly with half halts to do a halt, 
and your horse flails around and falls on the forehand, you have technically ridden the movement, you've halted, you've done a straight center line, but you haven't done it very well. And the reason that you haven't done it very well is that you haven't prepared for it. If you go through a corner and your horse is off balance and you then ask for a leg yield or a half pass or a shoulder in, you're setting your horse up for failure. So the stuff that happens between the movements is not technically judged, but it is what enables you to do things well. And that's why not necessarily riding tests all the time is a good thing to do, but riding the movements and preparing into the movements is so valuable. When you see a test that has flow, that's seamless, where the rider and the horse seem to always be ready for what's next, you know that the rider has practiced riding the connective tissue and hasn't just ridden movements over and over and over again. When I prepare my students to show what I tell them that I want them to do, and this is something that we, I think we all learned from Jane Savoy, is the idea of visualizing. And I tell them to imagine themselves in the arena and to ride the test. And that's not A down center line, X halt, salute, C track left, you know, E 20 meter circle. It's I'm heading down center line. I'm staring the judge right in the eyes. I have my legs evenly on my horse. I'm balanced in my rein connection. I know my horse and I know that I need to do three subtle half halts before I sink into the saddle and ask for the actual halt. I'm now putting both reins in my right hand, dropping my left hand. I'm picking up the reins. I take a breath. My leg goes on. I'm thinking forward, still looking at the judge closing my right leg because I know I'm preparing to turn left and I don't want to drift. So that's your connective tissue, right, Stephanie? That's, yeah. that's the stuff. Yeah. Um, and if you do that in your mind, you know, I do it before I go to sleep. Um, one five minute test can take you 10 to 15 minutes to ride right. um, in your head. Yeah. But you've ridden it now. How many times before you actually get into the ring and your body really doesn't know the difference between visualizing and doing things live. Right. So all of that little teeny tiny preparation, riding the stuff between the movements is what creates the balance and the suppleness of the movements themselves. So are you being judged on it? Kind of no. Are you being judged on it? Kind of, yeah, because that's, <laughs> that's what frames your movements. That's what right. makes the movements good. So that was a great question, and it's one that I was very happy to answer. Thank you. Yeah, and you know what? It's interesting that that this comes up and you talk about this because at the USDF trainers conference that I was just at, uh, they there was a lot of talk about the preparation for the movement the movement and then finishing the movement and yeah. how, yeah, it's exactly what you were saying um, and how that is all important and you need to do all of it and you need to do all of it well for just, you know, to, for yeah. the movement. 
Yeah. Um, so that was that was one of the things that was discussed uh, numerous times throughout the two days. So, you know, there you timely go. Timely question. There we Ti- go. Very right. timely. We couldn't have done that better if we tried. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> well, yay. <laughs> Learn from top experts with Dressage Today's complete video-on-demand dressage training online resource. Whether you're looking to better your basics, receive classical dressage training, or polish your Grand Prix movements, Dressage Today On Demand's 3,800-plus training videos can help you reach those goals. Learn more by going to ondemand.dressagetoday.com. Allison O'Dwyer is originally from Colorado, where she started taking consistent riding lessons at six years of age. By the time she graduated high school, she had competed in two eventing CCI two-star events. Taking a gap year after graduation, she headed to Kentucky to work for WEG silver medalist Dorothy Trapp Crowell, where Allison made huge strides in her horsemanship and riding ability. Under Dorothy's tutelage, Allison was able to compete up to the three-star level. In Kentucky, she gained an interest in dressage and achieved her USDF bronze medal with the help of Reese Kofler-Stanfield. After graduating from the University of Kentucky, Allison went to work for Michael Pollard, where she trained on her own horse and groomed professionally for his string of international eventers. Soon after retiring her last upper-level horse, she found her current niche in retraining ex-racehorses for eventing and dressage. Her recent success has been highlighted by the Retired Racehorse Project's Thoroughbred Makeover, where she's won the dressage competition three times. This year, Allison has two more exciting prospects for the competition— and she recently relocated to Wellington, Florida. Allison, it is so great for you to join us today. We are very happy that you took some time out to talk to us. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, our first burning question is that, you know, since your niche these days are thoroughbreds, how did you get involved in thoroughbreds and why did you get involved in thoroughbreds? Um, I think it started pretty early. My first horse was a thoroughbred mare. And then from her, I moved on to another thoroughbred. That was my first FEI eventing horse. And um, he was just so cool. And he was he was actually Montana bred, which is so interesting now that I know more about thoroughbreds. I'm like, what does that even mean? But right. <laughs> probably a they little bit thoroughbreds in Montana. <laughs> yes. And like race horses and a breeding program. And I don't know, wow. it might be all but extinct now, but he was, um, you know, this was back in like 2003. So it was like a while ago, but, um, yeah, so I started with thoroughbreds and then I got another thoroughbred um, after that. And, you know, I grew up in Colorado and I think Colorado kind of has a limited pool of of horses and horse people. So you kind of just get what you can. It's, I mean, it's kind of the way it works out there. And um, I moved to Kentucky to take a gap year and was introduced to Dorothy Crowell, formerly Dorothy Trapp. 
And she was quite famous and well-known for taking her off the track thoroughbreds all the way to um, Burley and Badminton and the World Equestrian Games. She had Molokai. Um, and she just really helped me with my young thoroughbred gelding that I had at the time and was very patient with him and um, got him and I all the way up to the championship two-star level, which is now the three-star level. And, um, she just is very, very, very passionate about the breed. And I was passionate about her. You know, I really um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. turned her into a mentor of mine and really dedicated every aspect of my life that year to her and continued to work with her when I started college. So, um, I think we kind of have, uh, my two main riding instructors in life to blame. <laughs> and then not only with them, but being in Lexington, Kentucky, it's you have tons of opportunities to yeah. get horses off the track and meet the thoroughbred people and see the thoroughbred industry. So it's, uh, I think being in that uh, environment is also infectious in a way. What do you like best about thoroughbreds? Oh, gosh, I really came to appreciate how smart they were. And I don't think I realized that until I went and worked with some other breeds, um, working um, on some other farms. And I did end up with a big Irish um, eventing Irish sport horse, you know, that was Irish draft crossbreed. And Mm -hmm. we got along, but not long term. (laughs) <laughs> and after him, I was really left wanting another, <laughs> another thoroughbred, you know, he was very tough and he was ridden by a man and, you know, he didn't have that sensitivity, um, and that respect for me, um, that I was missing, you know, that I had in the thoroughbreds and, you know, they're just, they're just very smart creatures and they have a lot of self-preservation. And I think I, didn't understand that until I went and worked with some other horses. And I was like, really appreciated the thoroughbred in that regard. Well, and you are married to a thoroughbred trainer, racehorse trainer. Has that helped you better understand the breed? Um, yes, yes. And yeah, yeah, I would. Or, or if not, you can say no. Well, we're, what we do is so different, you know, so I don't think it's really helped me understand like horses and the horse in general, but it is great to use him as a sounding board Mm -hmm. or um, my, my favorite thing is I, you know, he's my crash dummy when I get a new one. You know, I don't really like putting that very first (laughs) ride on them because, you know, a lot of times I just get them off the cuff and I don't know anything about them and they could have some sort of tick or behavioral issue. And um, although my last makeover winner, Kubo Cat, he was a very tough horse to start. And I really did use um, Jerry's experience with thoroughbreds. Um, and because this horse was very particular and um, Jerry's insight into him was extremely valuable. Right. But um, so I guess kind of yes, but um, he very much respects that what I do is very different than what he does. And I'm sure. the same. And a lot of horses I come across that do have issues on the track, a lot of them don't translate um, into the show horse world, into the sport horse world. You know, I've ended up getting horses off the track that down the line, you know, jockeys are telling me, oh my God, we drew straws on who had to ride that horse because he was awful. (laughs) 
And I was like, well, I just sold him to a 14 year old girl. Like, he's oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we both have that understanding too. It's a lot of times like what I expect from a horse and what he expects from a horse are also very different. And even though yeah. it's the same horse, um, the problems and, you know, not only the problems, but the strengths that that horse has, isn't always going to translate into the next job. Right. How is it different training an off the track thoroughbred versus training just a, a green horse? And how is it, how, what, what's it like trying to do dressage with a horse that comes off the track that just wants to run fast? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, it's, a lot of the racehorses, even though I have gotten so many different ones that are different sizes and have different issues, I kind of put them all on very much the same program. Um, my horses really never see a straight line ever again. Okay. <laughs> and I don't, have a, I don't have a hard time telling people that, you know, I'm like, these racehorses have seen enough straight lines for to do them. <laughs> you know, for the, for a while, at least I understand straightness is a crucial aspect of dressage, but that's the only way the horses go like for their whole life. So I work very hard in the beginning to keep them on circles and figure eights and bending and counter bending. And, um, you know, most of them come off the track, very similar to a two by four. And I'm just yeah. up there constantly, um, trying to supple them through their back and their neck and until they learn, you know, to move off my leg and also to steer off my leg. That's really what we focus on. Um, but the, you know, what would make them different is, you know, they're exposed to so many things, um, I'm not having to desensitize them to cars or to, mm -hmm. you know, be concerned about things blowing in the wind. You know, I mean, obviously, if something dramatic happens, a horse can spook here or there, but um, they handle atmosphere very differently from what they've seen. But also, I've kind of been laughing here in Wellington a little bit. If I follow the roads in the neighborhood, you know, I can have dump trucks and all these stuff passing me on the road and yeah. landscapers on mowers. And they don't really care about any of that. But if I'm on the canal and like a turtle jumps into the water, that's really <laughs> scary. And, I, you know, so the racehorses, they don't really know how to nature very well. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> so that's that's, that's that's been kind of funny. <laughs> I always get such a kick out of people on on, you know, who talk about thoroughbreds are so so spooky and so hot. And, you know, you're right. What they're exposed to at the track. I mean, I imagine taking one of my warm bloods. I would be dead, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, the, again, like they're so smart. Not only that, but they're handled on the ground so much, like not sitting here, like having to battle with a horse to like pick up its foot to pick it out like you know some of the big green you know other breeds you know you're just working with them so much on like these really simple tasks like even on the ground where these thoroughbreds yeah. are you know they you know and most of them I get they all load into the trailer really well you know I've had a couple difficult ones but they've been around the block and they've been handled a lot ever since yeah. they were babies and I think that makes a huge difference yeah, yeah. What do you find the most challenging about working with thoroughbreds? Um, I don't know. I mean, some of it, I guess, would be breed biased, you know, dealing with 
I do a lot of buying and selling. And so when you're trying to sell horses, you're kind of up against, you know, Mm -hmm. some people that might not be open minded to them, even though I love dressage and I'm passionate about dressage and all of my horses are, you know, schooled in that manner. Like they almost all get bought by eventers. And the eventers get on and they're like, oh, my God, it's so broke on the flat. And I'm like, yeah, but like, you know, it's not jumping around two, six courses yet or anything. And But they all seem very thankful for that when they get purchased. Yeah. But um, Well, so, I will tell you that several years ago, you were at the makeover and I was judging the dressage portion of the eventing. And. I, th- I think I placed you first. Um, you had a beautiful horse and a beautiful ride. You're a gorgeous rider. But the thing that really impressed me was I was judging the eventing. And I think I judged 50 horses over the course of the week. And there were probably five to seven. And I don't jump and I don't event. I'm a purely dressage person. There were five to seven horses that I would have packed into my car and taken home with me if I could have. Um, And I do a lot of judging and I see a lot of warm bloods. And I can't say that, you know, 10 percent of the warm bloods that I see, I'd want to bring home. So there there there's there's nothing shabby about a good thoroughbred. (laughs) Yeah, I think definitely. That's like wonderful to hear because. They have, you know, they have a lot to offer and, you know, it is sure fun to go to, you know, to go to a show. The The last winner I had, um, he uh, only got to, to one schooling show in Maryland, schooling dressage show. And then I took him to Kentucky a month, the month previous to the makeover and, and it entered a pretty serious like USDF show at the Kentucky Horse Park that is in September, the month before the makeover, which is in October. And um, he killed it, like killed it, <laughs> like and, you know, yeah it just goes to show you like they can definitely do the job and I think people you know unless you're looking for Grand Prix and wanting to be competitive at Grand Prix and wanting to do it immediately you know being open-minded to them is really important because they are really safe too you know a lot of the concerns about the spookiness and the you know that the warm bloods can bring like you're not going to have that same kind of issue with a well-trained thoroughbred how do you how do you I'm always overwhelmed. I see so many videos online of people who have just, you know, bought a horse that's recently off the track. And how can you see the potential for dressage? Yeah. Given it's there because they don't look like dressage horses when they come off the track. No, definitely not. <laughs> um, I know. Yeah. And it's like. You know, I try to, again, about being open-minded, but I do have a type, you know, and I I like a big, long shoulder, you know, perfect angle, not, you know, definitely not upright and short, but, you know, long sloping shoulder. That's probably the very first thing I look at. Um, you know, I look at lower limb conformation, you know, just as far as like long-term soundness. Um But again, you know, at this level, at the training, first level, second level, like really any of these horses should be able to do the job. And I really believe that, like if they have a good foundation and good training from the beginning, like they're going to develop the right muscles. Um, So I think I'm pickier than 
I might give myself credit for because it just <laughs> comes very naturally to me. Like I just have my trainer in my mind being like, Allison, you have a good eye own it. You're way pickier than you realize. But, yeah. um, in the same sense, like, and also one of my other in that same vein sort of is I don't look at pedigrees at all. I'm like some of these thoroughbred people that do these thoroughbred retraining and selling, they just get really into the pedigrees. And I feel like that just does the horse a big disservice because the horse is bred to race. And if you're not going to race the horse, the pedigree is not going to tell you anything about dressage because right. that pedigree is about racing. Yeah. And I've seen beautiful horses and not so beautiful horses by the same stallion. And so, <laughs> you know, I, um, try to really take the horse as an individual and not make too many judgments about it until I get to sit on it a few times. And, you know, I do a lot of buying and selling. So, you know, I just try to be quick to know like what that horse is, what that horse wants to do in life and where, yeah. where it fits best. Can you feel anything about the mental capacity of the horse just from a ride once or twice that this is a horse that will be suited to the rigors of dressage and the discipline of dressage? I would say so in the sense that like, you know, I can poke a lot of their buttons pretty quickly and at least see how they <laughs> handle it. You know, like, again, like bending off the leg and like, how hard is this going to be to teach you? And, um, you know, what's your sensitivity level? And yeah, like, especially I know my type and I know what I like. And so I can pretty quickly judge that. And I've learned my lesson, too. You know, I've learned <laughs> I've learned my lesson as far as like trying to fit square pegs mm. into round holes, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and I've made that mistake and I've kept horses too long and tried to you know, like I have this one horse that taught me a lot of lessons and he was the most difficult horse I ever got off the track. And I went and did eventing and I finally got that horse to a horse trials. And I think I got like a, a 52 in dressage and eventing <laughs> in eventing a good oh, score dear. is like a 25 yes. right. and, and doubled it. And I was crying like hysterically. Like I love to be competitive. I love to at least not embarrass myself. And I was embarrassed. And this is after over a year of training. Like this was not a horse that like I just got off the track yesterday. And I think that was the part that was like extra heartbreaking. Um, and I just tried to fit that square peg in that round hole for a really long time yeah. until my wallet finally was like, <laughs> you can't do that anymore. And um, I think. Uh, I, I sold him to a good spot, but it probably wasn't necessarily the right spot. And then that person thankfully found the perfect spot for that horse. And that horse is kicking butt and jumpers. That okay. horse gets to have his nose up in the air and he is fast and he turns fast and he jumps clean and he like is champion on the split rock jumping circuit. Mm. And uh, so that horse taught me a lot, you know, yeah. to mm -hmm. recognize quickly if I'm going to get along with it. And if I'm not, you know, where can I put that horse that's going to be better suited? Right. I think horses, we've talked about it more than once. Horses will keep you humble. They tend to teach oh, you yeah. lessons. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And again, about humility, right? Like, accept your loss. Like, yeah. you're not going to change who that horse is, you know, and he was mm -hmm. a very extreme case because, again, like, in at the Makeover, you know, it's training level. It's very basic flat work that any horse for any job should be sure. able to do successfully. So yeah. a lot. That's why I can be successful with many, many types of horses. But that one was a very extreme case where, 
yeah anyways but he's living his best life now and he's very good at his job so that's good that's the important thing in the end yeah well, so you've talked a bit about the um, Thoroughbred Makeover, and that's a, pro- a program from the Retired Racehorse Project. But there are probably people listening to this podcast that aren't very familiar with it, or they may have heard what it is, but don't really understand. Could you just give us just a little bit of you know background on on what it is and how you got involved with it? Yeah, yeah, of course. So it is put on by the Retired Racehorse Project, which is an entity on its own. The Thoroughbred Makeover is just something that they do. Um, And it's a really, really big competition in October. You're only allowed less than a year of training on your horse. And it had to have seen a race or at least a workout on a racetrack within a certain time period. And you know, I don't know if it's necessarily modeled after the Mustang makeover, but it, you know, it's a similar concept where you take a horse that has a different job and you teach it a new job. And, Mm -hmm. um, part of what really made me excited about it is I was really ready and appreciative to be judged subjectively. Like obviously dressage is a subjective sport, but I had been eventing for so long and you know, I was kind of disheartened occasionally by seeing people, you know, get around the jumping phases by the skin of their teeth and like <laughs> beat me. <laughs> yeah. And I really wanted to be able to show off the training that I had done um, in a subjective way where it would be appreciated, you know, instead of just I cleared the fences and yeah. I get a blue ribbon. I wanted someone to see like what what work went into the horse and again, have it be appreciated. Um So I um, started doing the makeover for um, dressage and eventing. And then after having my baby and having a pretty difficult horse um, that kind of intimidated me, honestly, after my um, pregnancy and and whatnot, I just decided to stick with dressage this most recent year. And Mm. I think it definitely paid off because it took a lot of the pressure off to try to get this horse around the jumping phases. And I just could really focus on what I felt good at at that time um but it's a really fun competition it's huge the divisions are huge the dressage division it's like over a hundred people and that just really causes me a lot of anxiety because (laughs) i mean it's two days of competition so if you go on day one and you're like in the lead or in the top you have 50 horses coming in behind you that could (laughs) knock you down 50 places if they wanted to and you know it's yep it's a short-lived success so um but i i tend to take it very seriously nowadays and i was a bit of a wreck last time just because there's it's a lot of pressure and it's probably put on by myself at this time but right um yeah the divisions are 100 people for the dressage you ride um training level it's either test two or test three um i can't remember i think it's I think I keep gets thinking two. it's yeah okay I was gonna say I keep telling myself it's test three but I think it's test two um <laughs> I think I made that mistake last time I kept like showing test three and I was like oh Jesus it's not even the third <laughs> test but anyways <laughs> and then you get to do the demo and that's where I have a lot of fun the demo yeah. is just five minutes and you can show whatever you want in five minutes so I just eat that up I love it you get to be really creative um, I mean, 
Yeah, it's so fun. And I get really into it. You know, I make sure to use um, a coach or a couple of people on the ground. Um, I do ride with uh, Reese Koffler Stanfield. I haven't been able to much because I was based in Maryland, but poor Reese gets hit up like the week before the makeover <laughs> when I show up early. And I'm like, watch this leg yield. Is this good enough? Can I show this in my demo? Is this good enough leg yield? I don't think it's good enough. And she's like, oh, Jesus, it's fine. Like, you know, so um, I think that is beneficial, especially to have eyes on the ground when you're trying to toy with things that are outside of your training level test. Um, so yeah, I have fun. I get really creative. Like one year, um, my horses again, like I kind of alluded to in the beginning, I, I practiced really hard getting them to steer, um, just with my legs and being able to move their shoulder. And, um, I was able to, I did this like free walk across the diagonal and I stayed on the buckle and as I came to the short side up by the judge, I did essentially like a walking, I guess, pirouette on my hind end, like a, a turn on the four, turn, turn on the haunches, like right in front of the vet. And I never picked up the reins. Oh, cool. So, yeah. So it was like almost like something you'd see in a Western, you know, I never right. picked up the reins and I did a turn on the haunches. I walked down a little way and I did a turn on the haunches the other way. And I never touched the reins and the horse was, you know, had its head down the whole time. And. I just really wanted to show that like my horse was in control and in between my legs, like whether right. I had a hold of his face or not. And um, so, like I said, I like, I get excited. Like that sort of stuff <laughs> makes me really excited. Well, and just, but- just for our listeners, um, the thoroughbred makeover has a lot of different um, disciplines that the horses can compete in. Um, which is the other thing. It's it's eventing and it's dressage and it's show hunters and it's barrel racing and it's Western pleasure and it's trails. And, you know, it's there are I I think there are 11 different disciplines. Um, And at the end, there's a finale and everybody who's won their different discipline all comes and does a thing. And then the ultimate winner is picked. And it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, there's so much going on. And and it's a really fun show, even just to go audit and, you know, watch there's so much action. And, and another thing too, like, you know, not only are the horses, you know, they see a lot on the racetrack, but before you get there, it's really important to take them and show them and get them out as much as possible, because the atmosphere is electric. Like when the makeover (laughs) moves into the Kentucky horse park, every aspect of the horse park Mm -hmm. is in play. I mean, they do fox hunting, like in the cross country field, and you literally have hounds and like a (laughs) mock fox hunt galloping by you. And you're just like trying to hack (laughs) to the Rolex ring to do your dressage (laughs) test. So, you know, my advice, which I'm sure the makeover people would all resonate is like to get your horse off property as much as possible before you show up there, because Um, A lot of horses can show up to the horse park and kind of lose it a little bit. Um, It's pretty electric. Just being in the Rolex arena is pretty electric. Yeah, it is. It is. (laughs) Yeah, we get the dressage for eventing as well and regular dressage. You get to show in the Rolex ring. Mm -hmm. And then if you make it to the finale, you show in the covered ring. And the covered ring can be really scary because it's a lot smaller and all the people and the vendors and everything is kind of right on top of the arena and they do allow ring schooling and I learned my lesson the first year because I didn't use my schooling for the covered ring because it was my first year I was like 
oh, I didn't, I wasn't even thinking about the finale. I just wanted to survive the first part. <laughs> and then I made it to the finale and my horse went in there and went, oh, crap. And I went, oh, <laughs> so I, I kind of prepare for the finale, whether or not I make it or not, just because I learned right. my lesson that like, just go ahead and get in there as much as possible. Cause yeah. Cause it's, it's a lot, but it's a, it's a really cool show and they offer cash prizes, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of people at that level don't ever have the chance to compete for money. So that's yeah. really fun. And they have a lot of specialty awards and they pin, um, junior and amateur separately as well. So, um, there's, there's a lot going on there. That's yeah. for sure. It's a super fun week. Whether you're competing yeah. or just watching, it is it is really I, I had a blast. Yeah, oh, it's good. Yeah, it's very cool. Are you going to make it this year? Um, I don't know. They invited me to judge this year, but it was I didn't I had already booked time and I couldn't. So who knows? Maybe I'll see you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Well, so what advice would you give to someone who is considering, you know, buying or trying uh, an off track thoroughbred. Who? Um, <laughs> no, uh, just thinking on where to take that exactly because, <laughs> you know, I don't want to frighten anybody, right? Like, and there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, I think, again, like, keep an open mind. And if you have questions, like, don't hesitate to reach out to people. Like, um, I think horse sport, you know, it always takes a village. And, you know, I love seeing even like professionals at the highest level take lessons, you know, just not to be afraid to reach out to get to get help and um, to take your time, Uh, you know, like these. Not to be in a rush, I guess, because in some sense, especially if you get a good one that's been around the block and has got a good head on its shoulder, it can be really easy just to like start jumping things. But like maybe your horse doesn't know how to stand at the mounting block. And, you know, I have to remind myself that a lot, too, is like, hey, if I just sit here and like mount and dismount 100 times until my horse stands at the mounting block and doesn't move like that was worth it. Yeah. And um because things like that will definitely pay off in the long run. And um, again, in the same vein of keeping an open mind, like I've had really quiet, downright lazy horses off the track. And I feel like a lot of people don't believe me when I say that. I mean, these horses can completely change. And, you know, just because a horse either raced or didn't race doesn't really say anything about their personality. You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. people say, I only want an unraced one because it'll be quieter. Well, I have a nine-year-old multiple stakes winner in the barn that has seen a lot of racing and she's so good. Like she acts like a nine-year-old should act like whether she raced or not. Like, you know, she's very quiet and sensible and, um, you know, not to read too much into that and to really try to take courses as individuals. Right. Um, because I, I get upset. I think when some people start to throw biases at them, Yeah. whether it's pedigree or, you know, they're racing, um, you know, whether or not they've raced and how much and, you know, stuff like that is, you know, they're very, 
there's so many of them. They, they, the amount of thoroughbreds that get bred in this country and born <laughs> mm-hmm. every, you know, I think people have to think like statistically, like, you know, a stallion can make a hundred babies a year and that's one stallion, you know? So statistically, like they're not all going to be the same and, you know, right. just to, to keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the bias is in all the breeds and that's that's why I'm so excited that we're talking about non-warm bloods and dressage. You know, there's the bias that because it's a warm blood, it's a great mover. And yeah. they're not all great. And they and I get tired of hearing people say, "Oh, he's such a nice mover for a thoroughbred." And you know, <laughs> some of the thoroughbreds I judge are way better movers than the warm bloods that I judge, and they have better brains and they're yeah. easier. So I think you have to keep an open mind and see every horse as an individual, but particularly the thoroughbreds, because they, they, there is a stereotype and I don't know that it's a viable one. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, yeah, I like my favorite horse in my barn right now is three coming, well, he's four now, technically that we're in January, but I have him around this whole equestrian I don't know, whatever housing community I'm in right now. And people are just floored all the time because I was doing it. I, you know, hacked him a couple times last year because I was considering trying to rush him as a three-year-old into last year's makeover. So I just like got on him literally like five times. And my neighbors were like, how old is this horse again? And it's a thoroughbred and you're out here by yourself on a trail ride. And I'm like, (laughs) Yes. Like they and he's three. <laughs> and he's three. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. And I just was like, he's only three else and just turn him back out. And now he's, you know, he's gonna go this year as a four-year-old. So now so of obviously you do lots and lots with horses. Is there something or are there things that you enjoy outside of the horse world? If there was more hours in the day, definitely. <laughs> uh, on a regular Understand. basis. Understand. <laughs> yeah. On a regular basis, not so much. I mean, I have a, a two-year-old daughter. so Okay. You know, well. She takes up my own. And we have our own little farm now. So I'm, you know, having to clean my stalls. And I do everything myself. I don't have any staff or anything. So, you know, I tack up. I untack. I clean the stalls. I get on the mower. You know, I do all mm-hmm. of it. Um but if there are infinite hours in the day, I would, I was an art major in college. I yeah. graduated oh. <laughs> with a visual arts degree. Um, I'd probably try to go find some ceramics, you know, studio and throw some pottery and do some stuff. I, you know, enjoy that very occasionally. I'll find a friend to go do like a wheel throwing class with me or something. So if I uh, had had time to do that, I'd probably would. No, understand between horses yeah. and a two-year-old. That's that's pretty much your life right there, huh? It is. Yeah, yeah it is. But it's that's a good okay. One. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to say that's all right. Nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we certainly appreciate you taking some time out of your horses and your two-year-old to uh, to, to talk, talk to us. with us. And um, best of luck heading towards you know training towards this year's thoroughbred makeover and we'll we'll keep an eye on you and maybe we'll check back with you later and see how everything's going yeah that would be great yeah i am i'm feeling the burn already it's only january i gotta gotta, (laughs) probably could use a couple chill pills between now and october i get pretty intense about it as people who know me i guess i'm very competitive especially when i feel like it's a you know, something I'm, I'm capable of doing, but right. yeah. So we'll see. It's, uh, it's, 
you know, especially being in Wellington, this place is like a pressure cooker. So it is, it is that. So yeah, yeah. I'm trying right. to keep my expectations within reason, but it's, it's tough when you are live in this town, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, good luck and you know, we wish you all the best and we'll we'll be back in touch. Okay. Thank you guys. You have a good day. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to the Dressage Today podcast. If you've missed any episodes or to subscribe, go to Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Learn more and read in-depth training articles at dressagetoday.com, or you can visit our subscription video site, ondemand.dressagetoday.com. Be sure to give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Happy riding, and we'll see you at X. The Dressage Today podcast is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of Equine Network, LLC.